0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 268 of the Fun With Cars Formula 1 and Other Motorsports Podcast or episode 2 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner and today it's time to talk IMSA, more specifically the race officially known as the Rolex 24 at Daytona, but you may also know it as the 24 Hours of Daytona. The 24 Hours of Daytona is the unofficial start to the road racing season, and the race typically draws talent from all over the globe. That includes European sports car, NASCAR, IndyCar, and Formula One drivers. The racing activity starts January 22nd through the 24th with the roar Before the 24, a three-day test session before the race weekend itself starts the following weekend with the green flag dropping January 30th and the checkered flag dropping on the 31st. To learn more about the race, I was fortunate enough to talk with one of the drivers of the 24 Hours of Daytona, Porsche factory driver Patrick Long. Yes! (laughs) I got an interview with Patrick Long. Patrick and I talk about what the race is like, what will be different because of the pandemic, And what won't be different because of the pandemic, we also talk about the five different racing classes entering this year, which is now it's DPI, LMP2, and a new class LMP3 in addition to GT Le Mans and GT Daytona. And GT Le Mans is very similar to GTE Pro at Le Mans and GT Daytona is basically the exact same thing as GT3. So anyway, there's five classes in total. So, we're going to talk about all that and much more. I was really happy to get a chance to talk to Patrick, and I hope you enjoy it. Here's the interview now. Patrick Long, Porsche factory driver, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. We're getting into this weird era. You know, the 24 hours of Daytona of 2020 was in many ways the last major motorsports race before. COVID and the pandemic really took hold. And now, even though we're well into the pandemic, this is the first time that the 24 Hours of Daytona really had to deal with it. So what's how is it different for you as a driver getting prepared for it?
1: Um, You know, it's business as usual. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's good to get my first uh, interview on the docket for 21. But yeah, no, uh, <laughs> Rolex 24 is uh, always a fan festival. Uh, But the preparation is the same for the driver and the team. Um, And and then once we get there, there's a little bit of a different energy. Um, But, you know, Daytona and and IMSA always do a good job of of balancing uh, what is the new normal for us in in COVID um, and, and being safe, but also allowing... Uh, some fans to get out and and you know the way they re- redesign the, the garage area with the glass I think there'll still be some some good interactivity but I haven't read much about um, how many fans or how they're going to deal with that and I uh, I just hope we're we're mindful that we need to all do our part so that we can get ourselves out of this and get back to real normal uh, activities
0: yeah absolutely now just to to make sure uh, I'm on the right page here are you returning with Wright Motorsports in the GTD 911?
1: Yeah, back with the uh, same lineup, uh, same sponsors, and uh, same team. So, um, since about 2016, uh, I've been pretty regular uh, with Wright Motorsports, uh, at least domestically. Um, they're a, a team that sort of uh, I've helped uh, grow their their programs and. Uh, coming back with Ryan Hardwick in first form for a second run at it is exciting. In saying that, um, you know, two points shy of the championship in our, our freshman year, sophomore year is is always a tough one because you think you're going to pick up right where you left off. But um, <laughs> the the realist in me knows that it's never like that. And it's it's a, a, a full reset. And I think the competition is is going to be deeper and, and there are more cars this year. And so, yeah, you can never never count your chickens in IMSA.
0: Well, and gosh, uh, now you're younger than me, and I'm going to say that right off the bat because I'm about to age <laughs> you here. Um, this is going to be your what, like 18th season with uh, Porsche, or is it 19 now?
1: Yeah, I I believe it's 18. It might be 19. Uh, I I lost track. Um, it's, Once it's you get wild. past 10, Think.
0: you don't have fingers to count it. So yeah, it's exactly, totally understandable.
1: Exactly. My my IQ only goes to 10, but <laughs> I um, I. I have just, um, you know, set it on record plenty of times. Yeah. Two decades with this company. Uh, if you asked me, um, as a, as an aspiring professional racing driver, if I could have one race or one season as a a Porsche hired gun, uh, I would have jumped at it and, and hung my hat up after that. So, um, it's unbelievable to, to, uh, you know, have this run and, I appreciate it, and I look around and I do uh, reflect um, I'm not one of these guys who says oh i'm I'm not about stats or i am not about um novelty it's it's just an unbelievable company and and i've I've been there uh, and seen it from when it was bungalows in Vysok with a coat tree that had helmets on it um, that was kind <laughs> of the motorsport department to now what is a you know twenty first century um, just amazing facility and, and seeing the RS spider program and, um, you know, that the 919 program and, and now what's on the cards for the future. It's, it's just exciting, um, to, to be I- involved. And specifically for me, um, the driving is, is one aspect of my role, uh, with Porsche. And I love all different as- aspects of it, but in the end, when you uh come off the jacks and it's your turn to perform at a at a race like the Rolex twenty four, it's really um pretty objective. It's it's do the lap times, be consistent, be reliable and and get the job done because there are so many talented drivers out there deserving of a, a seat in a program at the Rolex twenty-four. And the reality is one percent of them are there.
0: Yeah, uh I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Being being a driver myself that had the ambition but uh not the money and probably not the talent either but I, I was never that was never proven that i didn't have the talent so i can continue to think that i did the when you say exciting things to come i believe you're referring to uh Porsche's um commitment to once again go into the top prototype class is that what you're referring to yeah i
1: think there's a a lot of exciting stuff um you know on the horizon but yeah definitely coming back for overall Uh, prototype success is is something that gives everybody something to look forward to Um, I think that the era of overall uh, Le Mans and domestic IMSA racing uh, is about to enter uh, a a new pinnacle Uh, I think that really it's about cost-effective close racing and that's what we all want we want to see door-to-door battles um like the gtp era like the daytona prototype era um, where you have 12 15 cars that look very similar but are represented by different manufacturers you have pro and amateur drivers which i think is a big part of the sustainability of our sport and all of that is is that that eclipse of timing it's sort of like being a pro driver you know you have to have the the momentum and you have to be in the right place at the right time. I feel like there's certain golden eras of sports car racing. And I think that there's one um, coming our way. So it's, it's very cool.
0: Yeah. And you know, I totally agree with that. The only difference is I think that we're kind of already in it or maybe what perceived to be a golden era of IMSA was actually just the opening act. Maybe that was just an appetizer to a real golden era, which would be even cooler. Now, you are in the GTD class that's GT Daytona which basically follows GT3 rules, international GT3 rules. Which means you are in the you're in the slowest class and now that's the slowest of five classes. Does that affect your mentality, um your approach to this race in any way having a third prototype class?
1: It does. Um, it, it reminds me, or or I think that it will be similar to the LMPC class of a few years ago, where it is very much an entry-level category, even though they're technically faster or or potentially faster than our class. There will be drivers out there who, who won't be putting up the lap times Absolutely. and don't have the experience. And you know what? That's what keeps sports car racing exciting. And it's frustrating at times. And it... Um, it begs the question: uh, Other times, for a, a, an IndyCar driver who's in for one race, or is transitioning to sports car racing, of what's that guy doing out there? But the reality is that uh, sports car racing is is a very, very unique opportunity for uh, people who have found success in other businesses to come race at a high level. And it's kind of like mixed doubles at Wimbledon, where you, <laughs> you can find yourself, um, you know, on the court uh sharing sharing the the main stage with uh some of your heroes and i think that's special Uh, you have to go into it well prepared uh i think that the sanctioning bodies and and the the medical and and qualifications of lap times and things there has to be safety and involved but i do think that there are drivers that have proven in two or three years starting in their 30s um, can get to a place where they're they're competitive and they deserve a spot on the grid are they bringing a budget sure there's no mystery in that but uh it's it's not just someone off the street and and i think it's what this sport is founded on and i think it's a big part of the future and it's interesting to hear that lmdh will have a pro-am component to it at least domestically how much that develops uh is yet to be seen but i know um that it's it's definitely part of the plan and um Yeah, I mean, getting back to the class structure, I I think that we are in a golden era, but I think it's only going to get better. And I think that you will see uh, more distilled classes, more defined class structures in the future, and maybe fewer uh, nuances or technicalities of different acronyms and and confusing parts for the people that are new to the sport. But um, that's all just kind of the bump and grind of of sports car racing and, and finding That globalization, you mentioned it with GT3, the the class that I'm driving, which is um, GT Daytona or GTD, that is a platform of car that you can buy from uh, a wealth of different manufacturers and show up and race at Daytona uh, this coming month. Or go um, overseas and race in in a GT three championship in China or in Europe, and I think that LMDH that's the same principle that they're going for is is that you could race Le Mans Daytona the same year um, in a in a factory developed prototype uh, for a reasonable amount of money. This is well, a fraction of Formula One budget, but it's still um, well and a, a fraction a large sum
0: <laughs> and and a fraction of what uh, the top class of WEC was, you know.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was that was the beginning of this and I'm I one hundred percent agree with you and I'm I'm also equally hopeful about that, that we can have more international class racing. And Daytona is such a fantastic touch point of that because it is such an international event. And you know, I was worried because of the pandemic that it was gonna lose some of that flavor that Uh, It wasn't going to feel so international because so many people wouldn't be allowed to travel. And yet we've got Kevin Magnussen, former Haas F1 driver coming, Robert Kubica. We still have a lot of Europeans coming over and racing with us. So it feels, despite the pandemic, just as international it has ever been. And it's going to be a deep field. And now we have 50 cars because of that extra class instead of what was it last year? 38 or something
1: yeah I'm as surprised as you are about the international flavor of this year's field um also the car count um you know there's a lot of economic impact to this pandemic but uh, the motorsport doesn't seem to be convinced of that so uh, I'm still scratching my head but certainly um enticed and happy that there's a deep field an international field, and that that business is up um I think it shows. Uh, a few things um in the why but first and foremost it's passion and it's um just that determination to make programs happen irregardless um i think that i look back on you know the different eras of the rolex 24 and i i remember great periods of time where you had all these drivers from different disciplines who were descending to daytona in january and those are the, the, the best times. Uh, it's kind of the race of champions, if you will, of different different disciplines. You've got NASCAR champion Chase Elliott. You've got Formula One drivers. You've got sports car icons. You've got legends. You've got the, the new young up-and-comers. I mean, a few years ago, we had Lando Norris on the grid. And, and so I think that that's what I, I hope the future of the Rolex 24 holds. And and certainly, this is a good start.
0: Absolutely. And I believe we're going to have a few Car drivers come as well. Um yep. So my podcast um is about uh road racing, but its main focus is uh Formula 1 and uh I think people would love to learn I know it was a little while ago now, but you were part of the inaugural um Americans to F1 uh Red Bull Red Bull program and that's actually how you got Noticed by Porsche and ended up going to Porsche. And what's really unique about your story is you didn't you didn't get uh, removed from the Red Bull program. You left voluntarily to join Porsche. And I'm just curious if you could talk about what it was like being in the open wheeled field. And then what was the driver to make you make that decision to move to Porsche as opposed to continuing to try to get to F1?
1: yeah it's an interesting tale um you know this is the late 90s 96 was the first time that i went over to belgium to race in the uh what was called the five continents cup or or the junior world championships i was 14 um that was starting six on yeah Yeah, sixth on the grid next to uh next to a guy named fernando alonso who who won the race i went out um in the final in the first turn in a crash but um, you know, Ryan Briscoe was, was a favorite that year. Um, I then went, you know, through, through my years in Europe. And as we progressed, um, you know, it was a natural, natural jump into single seaters. I had a couple scholarships. I didn't have the family money to, to get into cars, but, um, you know, there was a Skip Barber scholarship. Bob Bondurant was a big help. Um, both those guys had, you know, good experience in Europe and appreciation for carting. And then really what landed me a full-time seat in Europe was the elf, uh, scholarship that, Launched a lot of drivers' careers, and um, being based in France, racing in a one-make cup championship uh, with some great drivers that had came through the La Filière program. Was that uh, Forde, it's one that jumps into my mind? And
0: sorry, that, go ahead. Was that Formula Renault?
1: It was a Formula Renault category. It was actually uh, the kind of precursor. It was a sixteen hundred um, oh. that they call they called Elf Campus. And campus being that we all lived at the University of Lamont, we went oh. into work in the technopark every day, and it was just an amazing experience. Oh, it I mean, sounds
0: incredible.
1: Henri, yeah, Henri Pescarolo was kind of the um, godfather of the program and the you famous Lamont driver, yeah. The drivers. Yeah, so it was it was very cool. But to answer your question, um you know, I went to England because that's where the center of sort of British Formula Three was producing the most Formula One drivers, and that was the aim. So going through Formula Ford, Formula Renault in, in England, and then at that point is when Red Bull came calling, and, and I got a call from Danny Sullivan, um, who was who was a, a, a mentor of mine, and he said, hey, I have good news. Red Bull is, is going to put together a fund, and they've asked me to lead the charge in scouting. Uh, all of, of, of America's racing categories, from short track, dirt, oval racing, um, you know, up to IndyCar and everything in between, and and to produce 16 drivers. Uh, a lot of people have probably heard me tell the story, but the the reality was, Red Bull uh, wanted something in a driver that they didn't see uh, in me, and and in the final, it was a category that was kind of a process of elimination, and in the final six, um, we went out in in Formula Three cars at Paul Ricard and um, Helmet Marco made the call that Scott Speed was his guy, and luckily for me, um, you know, Porsche was there sort of scouting. There were some pre-existing relationships between um, some of the parties at Red Bull, as well as Danny Sullivan, and they were invited along to observe this, this sort of um, PR uh, piece that had been going on since the Formula One Grand Prix that that year, which I think was about a month or two prior to this test. And when I met Uwe Bredel, uh, who was ex-Sauber Formula One and running the Super Cup for, for Porsche and Helmut Greiner, who launched the UPS junior team, which was Porsche's kind of farm team, um, I spent a little extra time with them, even though Red Bull was still forefront and it was all about Formula One because we were mid-test. Uh, but I, I realized that it was a little bit of a lottery. I had been through scholarships that I had won and lost and... I realized that you had to keep your eyes wide open and that we were all receiving so much exposure. Um, You know, we were at a press conference back the month prior at the U S Grand Prix at Indianapolis, and they had a a press conference. We had Bernie's formula one TV interviewing us. So there was this chance that I saw to kind of get my name out there and to try to try to make a a career out of this in any facet or any way that I could. And so long story short, it ended up going well um, with, with Porsche uh, when, when Red Bull kind of, made their choice in scott speed the next day the the phone rang and and the rest is history so yeah fortunate that um my aim for formula one and my training and cutting my teeth in europe for six seasons allowed me not only some speed and and the ability to adapt to weather conditions and and being thrown into a high pressure test with porsche but also the culture Uh, i think a mindset that you know dealing with the the powers to be in Europe is is a different cultural experience uh, in many ways than it is in the U.S. And because I was sort of dumped into Europe with no parents and living full time and working full time and studying full time in Europe, I had already been there for six years. It was it was kind of second nature to get on a plane at 21 and, and go over and meet the people at Porsche. And uh, they've rewarded me. So it's, it's been awesome.
0: Now, this is in no way trying to diss Scott Speed. But if you look at what you're doing right now with racing and what Scott speed went through in racing, I mean, for me, it seems pretty easy to look back with retrospect, you know, look back with hindsight and say, wow, you definitely made the right decision. I mean, do you feel the same way?
1: Uh, I, I think I did, but I think that it also was a little bit of not so much my, my predetermined decision. It's just sort of, how things go and you can look at it as luck or fate or making your own opportunities. Um, Scott's an amazing talent. I mean, naturally just one of the, one of the best I've ever raced against. Um, and he, he had a very, or has had a very diverse career and is still having one, um, in, in rally close course rally racing and, you know, getting to do NASCAR and formula one. So I think for someone, some drivers, they want diversity. They want different manufacturer representation. They want to say they. They got to race in many different disciplines. But um, for myself, number one is uh, I made a career with one manufacturer. And, and that's for me uh, the dream. And you're, you're able to uh, build inside of an amazing company. And I think that plenty of drivers have had amazing careers jumping uh, with many different manufacturers. And so it's just a different way. Uh, I think we're all uh, very fortunate if, if we get one day as a paid racing driver, let alone a couple of decades.
0: So do you do you think that there's a misconception between the difference in talent between a top level sports car driver such as yourself and a Formula One driver? Um, Because people tend to just kind of put put drivers in categories and black and white. Do you do you see it that way? Do you have a like this is the most common misconception that uh, fans have about the different disciplines?
1: I think it's difficult um, to understand it. I think it's it's hard to interpret from watching a race on television or at the racetrack. Who's a better driver or what discipline of racing um, creates better drivers? I think it's it's always fun to debate. It's always fun to discuss. Uh, I'm still a fan and a student of of motorsport, and I love to talk with my friends about you know the the Formula One season. But yeah, I do think that the majority of the commentary that that I've listened to or or read is is pretty misguided. You, you know, mm. it's it's the typical internet yeah. uh, commentary where you have the the YouTube warrior who who thinks he's he's an expert because he's done a couple autocross races. But <laughs> I think there's also drivers who um, have. Have raced and who have been in in shoulder to shoulder and those are always the best people for commentary and I think that's why you see in all sports ex players or ex racers um making the best color analysts and you know someone like Paul Tracy Paul is great in the commentary for IndyCar because he he knows the tricks he's been the bad guy he's been the good guy he's won championships yeah. he's crashed in the lead and, and been been fired by team owners and that's I mean, what
0: you want to listen to. That's Penske. what
1: you want to hear. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. you want to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I one hundred percent agree with you on Tracy. Uh, he's he's fascinating. And then yeah, when you know when he has something to say, you know right away it's legit. And uh, you can respect that completely. But you know, the Daytona twenty four hour event, it's in a marquee event and, you know, just as international as anything. When are you headed there, and what are, are there extra steps you have to take to be able to get get in the car and race?
1: I'm heading there next week, a couple days of preparation before the roar. They've moved the roar, of course, to uh, just the week prior yep. versus a few weeks before, and I, I like that move, although we haven't lived through it yet. Preparation is, is karting um, for the neck, the shoulders, the hands, and then cardio. Um, with with some core work and and more calisthenics. I'm not a big weight guy because the driver's body weight doesn't factor into the equation of of most racing championships in sports car racing. So, yeah, always trying to be um, that much more prepared and really that physical and mental side is it just allows you more bandwidth to enjoy racing, to focus on your craft and and your speed versus getting comfortable or nursing your way through a a sore shoulder so uh, like in anything try to go in as prepared as you can and and it makes the job uh, that much more satisfying and uh, yeah we'll go go do some work i getting back to your previous question I I might not have answered it but in in the most uh, quick form possible I think what some drivers underestimate in sports car racing who might not have experienced it even a Formula One driver coming in is you come out of the pit box in the middle of the night at Daytona your tires are freezing cold and let me tell you it gets cold in Daytona in the winter uh, especially at night yeah and you go out you go out and come off the pit lane button whether you're in a GT car or a prototype that's a that's a discipline that that you don't feel um, in Formula One um, dealing with amateur drivers in multiple classes with uh, safety cars and restarts coexisting if you will those are different disciplines that that you know challenge drivers in different ways but at the same time what Formula One and IndyCar and open wheel drivers do is just a, a, a caliper of driver, a physical fitness that is is hard to argue with, and and so many other aspects of what they do are are so unbelievable. I mean, you watch somebody like Scott Dixon um, produce speed and save fuel. Um, you know, that's that stuff that that's still very analog and old school in in IndyCar that I don't see in Formula One. So, yeah, I'm a, as you can tell, I love to to watch all different disciplines of of racing. And, uh, I, I'm glad to be heading to, to Daytona with, with drivers from all those di- different disciplines.
0: Well, Patrick, I mean, you're just, you're just, you did it again, man. You have so much interesting stuff to say. You know, I plan to talk to you for 15 minutes and here we are 25 minutes in and I feel like I'm halfway through. Thank you so very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's always great to talk with you and I I wish you the best of luck. I hope Wright Motorsports just has a great daytona in 2021
1: well thank you robin uh always good to chat and look forward to doing it again
0: well i really hope you enjoyed the interview next week i will dig into more detail about the upcoming endurance classic and share another interview yes i got another interview i recently had the chance to speak with sports car racing legend pearly haywood Hurley Haywood, yes, I'm very happy about this. Hurley Haywood, the five-time 24 Hours of Daytona and three-time 24 Hours of Le Mans winner, agreed to talk with me on my podcast. But I want to first say thank you one more time to Porsche factory driver Patrick Long. I just, I've had a chance to talk with him a few times now, and it's always a pleasure, and I always learn something, and I always appreciate his perspective on sports car racing, 24 hours of Daytona, and just racing in general. Thank you, Patrick. Anyway, after the checkered flag falls at Daytona, I'll get Chris Roche on the phone and we'll dive into Formula One news. There will be plenty to discuss. The new, and I'm using air quotes here, Aston Martin and Alpine racing teams, known last year as Racing Point and Renault, as well as the altered and still not set in stone 2021 racing schedule and much more. I also plan to talk a bit about the upcoming IndyCar season, continue to follow IMSA, and do what I can to book more interviews with other drivers and important people in motorsport. I hope you like it. I I, I actually hope you love it. (laughs) Well, anyway, that was our show. Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcast, and I mean that so very sincerely, more than I ever have before. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars, and check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. I'm Robin Warder. Goodbye.